Have you thought about starting your own podcast? Well, if you have, then you want to download Anchor. It's the easiest way that you can make a podcast. They give you everything you need in one place, and it's absolutely for free. You can use it right from your phone or your computer. They have creation tools that allow you to record and edit your podcast so it sounds great. They'll even distribute the podcast for you so it can be heard everywhere, like on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and others. You can make money from your podcast with no minimum listenership. So if you were thinking of starting your own podcast, you want to download the Anchor app or go to anchor.fm to get started. Right. Happy Tuesday, ladies and gentlemen. This is episode number 118 of Shut Up and Grind with your host, yours truly, Robert B. Foster. If you are new to the show, yes, I wear a tank top, not to show off. It's because I emit a lot of heat and I'd be a hot, sweaty mess by the end of this broadcast if I did not wear one. So don't think I'm that guy, although the shoulders do look pretty nice. All right. So again, if you're new to the show, we talk about overcoming obstacles. We talk about defying the odds and we do this for you. This isn't just so I can hear myself talk. This isn't just so we can hear the guests talk is we want to combine our messages to help you get to a better place in your life. And today we're going to talk about what happens when you just don't get it. You know, because there are times in life where you're just stuck and you just can't get unstuck. And no matter what you try, you just stay stuck. Even sometimes you push yourself even further down. So my guest and I, we're going to discuss that. But as you all know, we must first talk about me. I started doing workshops and doing groups where I'm getting up in front of of others, like outside of the gym setting and talking about resilience and perseverance and goal setting and vision and taking action. You should know what one hour of your time is worth. You should know the value that you bring to the marketplace. You know what your passion is. starts with clarity of vision. If you don't have the clarity of vision, whatever next thing you get, you're not going to see it through because you don't have the clarity of vision. So the, the point of my pain was being told you will never run or jump again. And all that stuff, I was like, you know what? Like, I want to be able to take this even bigger. If you know why you do what you do, you have to know how to charge for what you do. That's how you're going to change your life, and that's how you're going to leave a legacy for your children and your family. you got to know your work. All right, so if you didn't know me, that at least gives you a little glimpse into who I am and why I do what I do. So growing up, my parents were very big in instilling strong values within us about believing in believing in yourself, but more so believing in others. So the more, I don't want to say faith, maybe even trust, the more trust that you put in others, the more you're going to get back in return. So people always ask me, you know, how did you become the way you are? And I can think back to watching my father in his garage. Now, he passed in 2019, God rest his soul, but I know he's here listening to to this uh, episode. But I remember watching him in his garage as a young boy, and he was rebuilding an engine in one of the many engines that he rebuilt. And whenever things went wrong, he never never complained about it. He might drop an occasional F-bomb, but he never complained about it. He just always found a way. It was like, well, I don't have this, so I'll make it. Oh, I, I need this. All right, I'll run and go go get it. This piece doesn't fit. We're going to shift it, trim it, do what I have to do. And he made it fit. Like everything with him, like no was never part of the equation. Never. And so seeing that growing up, and he was 45 when I passed. So I had 45 years of him just helping me get through life. And 
again, the purpose of this is to help you do the same. So the people who watch this show on a regular basis, the value that they're finding in people's stories is that it connects them with their own and it helps them better express their own. So it's one thing to say, you heard in the bio, I was told I would never run, run or jump again. So what I did with that information was it had nothing to do with proving the doctor wrong or proving the doctor is wrong. It had everything to do with making this into a comeback story. So I was like, all right, I'm going to take what he said and I'm going to do everything I can in my power to be able to run and jump again. And so it's not even a fact that, look, I did it. Now I can inspire other people to do it. I can inspire other people to take that leap of faith, inspire other people to tell maybe the dirty parts of their story that they think won't inspire other people. And I show them how to pluck out the power in those stories so you can help other people move forward. So no matter what it is you're keeping inside, no matter what path you went on, there is power within you. And hopefully with each episode, with each guest who comes and shares, you're getting one step closer to unlocking that power and sharing it with others because you have the power to save someone's life. All right. So let's get to the main topic about what happens when you just don't get it. So coming to help me with this conversation, let me pull up the bio. He is the founder and the, you know what? I did it again. I did not ask him how to pronounce his last name. So if I mess it up, please forgive me. All right, he is the founder and director of Spirit Equip Ministries. Spirit Equip is designed to equip and train your spiritual life for success one small step at a time. He would be delighted to come alongside of you to help equip your spiritual life and ministry. I met this man at National Publicity Summit. He gave a great opening pitch, and I said, I need to talk to that man. So welcome to the show, Dr. David Chatka. You said, How'd I do? You said it right. I'm, I'm Nailed in- it. <laughs> <laughs> the fact that you actually, that puts you in a whole different category. My, my esteem for you has risen. <laughs> love it. Love it. I've been calling right. funny thing. My hometown, they always call me Chakota. It's, <laughs> it's so strange. Hello, Mr. Chakota. You know, anyway. I've been also called Choctaw. You know, did, uh, by the way, oh, are you yeah. a Presbyterian? Did you work with the Choctaw Indians? You know, that guy. <laughs> All right, so you're joining us from Canada. Yes, I am. I'm from Windsor, Ontario, just across from Detroit. So I can walk 100 yards and look across the river, and there's Detroit. So that's how close I am to the U.S. border. Wow. Yep. And um, are you originally from there? No, I'm originally from St. Catharines, which is just north of Niagara Falls. So okay. I have been, I have grown up very close to the U.S. border. In fact, I used to love watching American television. <laughs> now, we can you can stream anything you want to now, but in those days there were there was a two color TV, black and white. You know, mm. and you could you, if there was two Canadian channels and there were five American ones, and so you know, I grew up watching you know uh, American channels from just across the border. <laughs> That's great, right in the signals path. Perfect. It was actually it, it really was because Toronto was just north of me. Yeah, a major Canadian city of four million, and the great right down south was uh, was all kinds of American cities of multiplied millions. So yes, I was right in the middle of that path. Okay, all right. So you have no shortage of high energy. I love that. <laughs> so uh, how would you describe yourself? Well, actually, thanks for give, you give me a heads up before the program began. So and I and I didn't know where you're going to go with this conversation. So <laughs> since you picked the topic that you picked, let me start with a story. Okay. So uh, my, both of my parents are Ukrainian farm immigrants. They wound up breaking the prairie soil in uh, in 1920s and 1930s, when the land was being settled, etc. Yeah. And if you can just picture this, um, uh, they spent their time picking roots and rocks. The, the 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 frozen ground would push the rocks up, and the roots were in the soil from being wild and never broken soil. And so, if you can imagine, my dad picking roots and my mom picking rocks. Now, suddenly, I see a cultivated field. I know that my father and my mother are going to find job. I am walking across the field and suddenly I trip on a root that one parent missed and I bang my head on the rock Ooh. that the other parent missed. And at that moment, I want to say words that would make my mother look at me very strangely. <laughs> and I, <laughs> I'm pleading, I'm cut. I pick up the rock that my head hit and it's a diamond. Mm. It's a sapphire. It's a ruby. And that is actually kind of my life story. 
I, I'll be doing my ordinary work. I'll be going along doing something. I'll trip over something that I think is a tremendous nuisance. And the next thing you know, I've discovered that I've hit on something that's marvelous and a treasure. So I would describe me as the guy who tripped over stuff that he wasn't expecting to find. <laughs> <laughs> the result of it is that it's the, the things that I did not expect would make me to get me to the place I am were the very foundation stones that brought me there. I was quite happy. What happens if you just don't get it? Because I just didn't get it. <laughs> In fact, the pitch I gave you at the National Felicity Summit was a story of my just not getting it. Yeah. And so I don't know if you want to hear that story. Uh, of course. Well, so here's here's what it is. So so I met you at the National Felicity Summit. I signed up to do a course on popular writing and the process. I met the, this this organization that that ran this this uh, this outreach to people. Anyway, it was the opportunity to meet media people like yourself, and I had exactly thirty seconds to make my story work, and then hopefully I could engage the host. That's what they taught us to do. Mm. But uh, let me say this to you: I was a seminary student in a very liberal seminary. Now you know this that you have a mixed constituency. I'm sure in your audience you've got some yeah. Catholics and Baptists and you got some atheists and you got some Mennonites and you got some people who don't know. Yeah, right? <laughs> pretty much. <laughs> anyway, the point is well, the spirituality. But I had had a dramatic uh, experience of the, of the Lord and I wound up training inside a denomination that really didn't believe in the supernatural power of God. And I did because my conversion was remarkable. Yes. And uh, here's what happened. Um, I would go into my classes and we'd wind up talking about the gospel. And one of the, of course, the gospel is filled with things like healing miracles or the, the supernatural happening or the resurrection of the dead or these kinds of things. Yes. And it was a rationalistic school and I was a supernaturalist. That's the best way to describe this. And so I was kind of a fish out of water. It was, I was an mm -hmm. odd duck in that context. And this, I liked the students, they liked me, but we just couldn't stand each other's perspective. <laughs> <laughs> Again, I tripped into this. I, I wasn't expecting to do this. So here's what happened. I would go into a class and I would say something like, oh yeah, Jesus did walk on water. Moses split the sea. And there was a student in the class who was an absolute magnificent jokester. The guy was a comedian. He was hilarious. And what he would do if he disagreed with you, he would make you the object of his humor gun. <laughs> He'd fire the gun. <laughs> and the next thing you know, the, the grenade would land in the room. Everybody would roar with laughter. I would laugh myself. But I was the object of the humor. And it hurt. Yes. In the course of time, you, you laugh at it for a while and you rub it off and okay, fair enough. But in the course of time, you just avoid the guy. <laughs> now, he had a lovely wife who was sweet and gentle. And we had a mutual friend who was kind and gracious. She was one of those do and others you would have them do unto you kind of people. Yes. Anyway, uh, one day I was walking to a class. And this do unto others, you would have them do unto other girl. I'm going to call her Sue. That's what I call her in the book that I wrote. Anyway, <laughs> she, she saves me and she says, oh, by the way, our friend's in the hospital. And I'll, I will confess, I didn't feel bad. <laughs> <laughs> wow. That's a very wrong thing to tell you. I had to repent of my nasty attitude. Anyway, mm. So I, she said, he wants you to go and pray for him. I looked at the girl and I said, oh, you've got to be kidding Anytime I've said anything that has to do with the historicity of the gospel or the fact that Jesus did something remarkable or Moses split the sea or something, he has made me the object of his humor and he's been cruel. Yes. And the girl said, you know what? He has been. He's my friend, but I've watched him be cruel to you. I'll go and talk to him. I said, well, I, I don't think, I think he wants to make fun of me. I think that's what's going on. Every time I've been mentioned something like this, he's made fun of me. So away she goes, right? <laughs> I see her the next day in the coffee lounge in school. And she said, uh, listen, the fellow has apologized to me. He wants to apologize to you. He's terribly sorry. And I said, I don't believe it. Mm -hmm. <laughs> He's done this to me before. It's a bait and switch. Yes. And she, and she said, well, I'll talk to him again. And so away I went to my classes. And I, came, you know, I went home and I came back the next day and I was on my way to another class. And I bumped into the girl a third time, three days in a row. And I'd never bumped into her three days in a row like that. It was very unusual. Yes. She said, oh, by the way, our friend's in the hospital. Have you gone to see him? I said, I am not going. And you, listen, Robert, you want Robert or Rob? What do you prefer? Either one, just not Bob. The girl <laughs> got hopping mad. And she was a sweet, kind, gentle soul. <laughs> and see the girl hopping mad. 
really was astonishing. She got fire in her eyes. Her back got up. She stomped her foot and she used my middle initial. She said, David Archotka, aren't you somebody who's going around saying that the Bible is the word of God and it should be obeyed and it's true and all those kinds of things? Mm. I said, well, yes. And she said, well, what about this verse? Jesus of Nazareth said, I was sick and you visited me. Aren't you going to go? And suddenly, oh, Rob, suddenly a fell blow <laughs> landed in the center of my heart. I thought, oh, no, yeah. oh, no, I'm going to have to go and see this guy. Now, there were two reasons why I didn't want to go. The one I just said to you, he was a jokester and he had always, always, always uh, poked cruel funny. The second was he wanted me to pray for his healing. Yeah. And uh, I didn't know, I'd never seen anybody healed. I didn't know anybody healed. I had been eight years as a believer. I'd never been taught to pray for healing. Nobody had showed me. I didn't have any substantive evidence. What I did have were the Bible stories. Okay. Now, here's the thing about this. If you say Jesus forgives, I know thousands of people who've experienced that. Thousands and thousands of and I can see the evidence of how they feel forgiven when they talk to me. It, if the Bible says Jesus heals, but I hadn't seen any evidence. Yes. And so here was my struggle. I believed as a matter as a faith because it was in that book, but I hadn't seen the evidence. And so he had phlebitis. I don't know if you know what that is. I should explain it for the audience in case there's something yes. different. Phlebitis is where you get an embolism, uh, uh, like a like a clot in your vein, either yes. in your arm or in your leg or something like this. It's called deep vein thrombosis when it's in your leg. It's called uh, phlebitis when it's in your arm. And say so this this guy had a vein there, a, a clot in his vein, and if the clot broke free, and it wound up going into your lung or your brain, it would very likely kill you. And uh, it, 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 there are people who have survived it, but they're like two percent of the population. Yes. Usually, if that happens, it's over. He was in his 20s, and he didn't want to die. So he asked this girl to get me to come and pray for him that he might get well. And I was, first of all, afraid that he was just stringing me along. But the, the, the real fear was not the one that I just told you. I've been mocked yes. for by better souls than him. <laughs> <laughs> the, the, I grew up in a truck stop. My parents ran this truck stop. And I grew up a son of Ukrainian immigrants. And so, I mean, it was kind of a funny background but regardless of this <laughs> um uh i didn't I, I didn't know what to do i i had no idea how to do this and but but that scripture told me i had no choice <laughs> unless i was going to be a hypocrite <laughs> so true okay I, so so i walk my yeah, way to the hospital room and yeah. i walk in the room and there's the guy and it's obviously very serious he's he's got monitors on and he's hooked up to pacemakers, or pace, you know, these, these wires and tubes and everything is going in the room and the beeping's going and the lights are great. He's pale as a ghost. And I look at him and I realize the guy is in trouble. And I, but I had to clear something with him. So I looked him in the eye and I said, look, there's one thing I have to know. Why in the name of all that is holy are you asking me to come and pray for you when every single time, and we're talking without exception, every single time, I have said that the Bible is true, or the scripture, this particular account is true, or Jesus did heal this person, or whatever. Anytime I've said that, you have made me a laughing stock. He cried. And he said, I am so sorry I did that to you. But I have phlebitis. I could die. Mm. And he said this line. I don't know anybody else who believes that the Bible is completely true except for you. Wow. And I could die. Won't you please pray for me? Oh, well, what are you going to do, right? I mean, it's, it's moving oh, to my tone. Yeah, so, but I, again, I have no idea what to do. <laughs> so <laughs> I moved, but I'm, clots, this, again, it's what do you do? We just don't get it. And it's the theme of the day here. So, so let, I, let I, me, let me jump in. Let me jump in real quick. Then, yeah. then, then, then I want you to, to finish that. But this, this ties into what you're saying. So have you seen the movie Bruce Almighty? Yes. <laughs> he so, into it too. Right. So I remember like the one with the flood too. I love that story. Yeah. Yes. yes. So re remember at somewhere towards the end of the movie where Bruce was talking to Morgan Freeman yeah. about about you know, you know, you say God is this and you say God is that, but yet all of this stuff happens. Oh, I'm sorry, no, he was talking to his wife. That's what it was. 
Yeah. So this was this was Evan Almighty then. You're right. What's Evan, yeah. Actually, Evan? I've seen him. I've seen him both. Yes. Okay. Yes. Yeah, so it was Evan when the wife had left because of everything when they were building the ark and all that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And yeah. and so he comes to talk to the wife and says, you know, if you pray for forgiveness, you get put in a position for you to forgive. You know. So so with what you're saying, it's like he needed to atone. For what he did to you, but you also needed to forgive him. You know what? And, and this event, yeah, this event put you to, yeah, yeah, that event put you to in a position for that healing to happen. Yes, it's true. It's very true. Yes. So, so you're right. And actually, the Bible does say that you have to do that. Yes. And it has to do with getting right with God, getting right with yourself, getting right with your neighbor. It's it's all it's all connected to this thing yes. called the love of God. I mean, the Lord yes. is not out to be an ogre. The Lord is out to bring us to a place where we become like that. Yes. He's looking for a, a community of love. That's what he's looking for. Yes. Anyway, so I go over the, so I'm in this room and my heart is pounding because I don't know what to do, right? I'm trying to figure out what to do. And I remembered, oh yeah, uh, Jesus put his hand on the sick people. <laughs> <laughs> I've never done that before. So I go to his side and I said, where is the phlebitis? He said, left arm. And he showed me the spot right close to his elbow. I said, may I put my hand there? And he said, oh, yeah, you can do that. So I put my hand on that spot. And I said, I put my hand on, on his forehead as well. And then I started to pray. And listen, Rob, I don't remember what I prayed. I was yeah. scared out of my ever-loving tree. I know it was an honest prayer. That's how I can tell you that. I know it was an honest prayer. And while I was praying, and I asked Jesus to him while I was doing that, suddenly the whole room filled with a sense of presence. It was like this fire and compassion and peace and love. And it was like so thick you could inhale it. And then it came into my spirit and grew inside of my interior being. And suddenly overwhelming compassion for this man filled my whole soul. And then I felt fire and joy come inside of me. And then holy, the only way we can describe it, I have, I didn't have language in those days. The, looking back at it now, I would say that what I felt was holy conviction, mm -hmm. a settled, profound focus on the fact that this man must become well. And as I put my hand on his, on his arm and started to pray, this fire flowed down my arm and went into his arm. And I'll never forget what he said. Uh, the first, actually, the first thing was funny. He said, hot flashes. How did you do that? <laughs> and then he said, presence, fiery, profound presence. What is that? I said, that's the power, the healing power of the Lord Jesus. He's touching your body and he's making you well. And then I'll, this, this, this is the part that's funny. I ran out of the room. <laughs> <laughs> you were really still nervous? Well, no, it was it was two things. Uh, number one, I thought he was going to turn the humor gun on me because I still didn't trust okay. using the bait and switch. And the other was, I had never experienced anything like that before in my entire life. Mm. I had never seen it. I had never, I mean, I watched the crazies on television, slapping people on the forehead and screaming. I've seen those crazies. <laughs> But that was not the model that I wanted to follow. Thank you very much, right? Yes. I'm having this moment, and, and I, I am in awe that it happened, but I'm also terrified, holy terror. So I ran out of the room because, number one, I thought he was going to make fun of me. Number two, I, did, I had never, ever, ever seen anything like this. Well, as it turned out, nurse walked in right after I walked in. <laughs> I found this out months later. He looked at the nurse, and he said, oh, my friend from Bible college came and prayed. I can go home now. Jesus is healed me. <laughs> <laughs> that's said, awesome no she said no 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 no. you can't go unless you run tests and so they and he was due for them anyway because it was you know the time of the day when they did that every trace of phlebitis in his body was gone it's amazing yeah so I, to the next day four o'clock in the afternoon i came out of my my class and I, we had a two or four class for the coffee break in the class. came out of my class there he was in the coffee lounge mm -hmm. i looked at him i said you're here and it was an old 19th century building with fluted columns in the hallway. You know, we have the, the, you have those beautiful columns that come out and they make little corners. And yes. He pulled me into one of those corners, <laughs> <laughs> looked in every direction. And then he said, ah, that prayer changed my life. And what he didn't know was that prayer changed my life. <laughs> yep. Exactly. And then I ran away again. Because I still didn't know if he was going to do a bait and switch. I still didn't know. 
And here's the evidence that happened after this. Uh, by the way, I got a note from him on the 30th anniversary of that event. Wow. Thanking me that that had happened. He tracked me down because we're now in different parts of the country doing different things, et cetera, et cetera. He went off in a different direction than I did. And I lost track with him. But he, he found me on the 30th anniversary. And when I was in the middle of trying to figure out whether or not I was doing what God wanted me to do, I got this note. And he said, you have no idea. Thank you. I, by the way, I have three kids now. Uh, I'm happy. Yes. I've, I've done, I've succeeded in life, I've, you know, et cetera, et cetera. But I mean, here's what happened. So the, the, the following day, I went into a class and he was in the class. And I made a comment about the historicity of the Bible, you know. And the class was about to laugh. And he turned the humor gun on unbelief mm. rather than turning the humor gun on faith. Okay. Yeah. And the whole class laughed, but the object of the humor was not faith. The object of the humor was not believing what was in the scripture. And he kept that up for months. And so it was, it was a remarkable kind of a time, but actually it fits the theme of the day because I tripped into the stupid thing. <laughs> <laughs> I described so, my opening comment. I, I tripped over the root, I banged my head on the rock, and I discovered a diamond. This is yes. That's the theme of my life. <laughs> so so let the thing I've ever done in life has been just like that. So let me ask you. So so you were you were a, a believer at that time, but this guy, you were the butt of a lot of his jokes. Yes. And so I'm assuming that that kept some pent up frustration within you. So well, within sure. that, wait, wait, hold on, hold on. Okay, let me, finish let, let, I'm not sure yeah, let me get to let me get to the question. Sure. So because I was wondering when he was reaching out for you to come pray for him, yeah. and you were you were hesitant at first. Yeah. Right. So now was it because of the jokes, or did you have some inner resentment towards him because of the jokes? And and I asked that because you had the way you you described the feeling of that like that burning going down your arm like could that have just been the, the weight of that resentment leaving you oh no 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 it's very different no? listen i've had i've had people that i've had to forgive yeah uh and many of them uh, in fact some of my earliest actually this is more of the of the, of the family of origin issue I, my father was betrayed by people who said they loved him okay and um actually my aunt ran a strip joint and she saved his life when he was a little boy. Mm. And so my aunt who ran the strip joint was the hero. <laughs> <laughs> the irony. You know, we used to do Christmas in the strip joint. Yeah. I had to decorate the Christmas tree in the strip joint. In fact, I could, when I first got, became a believer, and I realized that this was destructive behavior. This makes women objects. This destroys them. This turns men into lust machines. This is something that is greedy and filled with violence. Mm -hmm. When I realized how ugly that was, of course, you, the first thing you do inside of yourself is do the revulsion thing. And then you realize that it's in you. Yeah, It's part of who you are. And I had to come to terms with all of that kind of stuff that was in that background. And so um, that, that kind of thing, that you're right. When you actually release the resentment, there's a sense of weight being lifted off. But when the anointing of the spirit lands, it feels very different. Very, very, very different. It's like this burning fire of joy. Yeah. And it's a compassion thing. In fact, one of the triggers where I know that I'm supposed to pray for somebody to get well is there's a welling up of compassion inside of me, even particularly if I don't know the person or if I don't like the person. <laughs> <laughs> and, if, and if I find a welling up of compassion coming inside of me for somebody that I don't like, oh, that would not be me. Thank you very much. That's the Lord. That's God. In fact, if you, if you read the Gospels, it's very interesting. One of the most fascinating studies that you can do is to look at the relationship between that emotion called compassion and the miracles of Jesus. Yes. Back in, in Mark chapter 1. A leper comes running up to him, throws himself down at Jesus' feet. It's in Mark chapter 1. I think it's about verse 40 or 41. And and I don't know if you know what they, they did quarantine in those days because they knew that leprosy would just destroy a community and kill people and make them helpless and so on. So they used to quarantine these guys and they put them into leper villages and they had to ring a bell and say they were unclean. Everybody came near them and so on. 
This leper runs right up to Jesus and throws himself down at his feet with the apostolic band all around him. I think the 12 guys ran. (laughs) (laughs) And, And the guy says to Jesus, if you're willing, you can make me clean. And the scripture says this interesting thing. Moved with compassion. He said, I'm willing. And then he touched him. So he broke the rules based upon this welling up of compassion. One of the signals that I've come to recognize is that when that happens inside of you, that is God himself saying, you need to care for this person. I don't give a rip if you love them or if you detest them. This is someone that I need you to touch and love and care for. And so when it grates against my sensibilities, it is much more likely that that's the Lord. <laughs> no, you know this. And I, you have people you love and you have people you don't love. Yeah. In fact, I listened to one of your broadcasts. You don't like Democrats. <laughs> I don't like democratic ideology. Okay, there you go. But let's say that you, yeah. you meet one of the harbingers of one of those big ideas that you detest. Mm. And, so, and you're in the presence of this person and you're going after the bad thing. Uh, this is the kind of thing where you know it's God when he commands you to care for that person. Yes. Then you know it's the Lord. Because it's, it goes against your own sensibilities. It goes against your earnest desires. It goes against, let's say somebody hurts your wife. Mm-hmm. And you wind up being somebody who is called upon to give care to somebody who has been nasty to your family. And when you feel grace rising up inside you, when you're beside somebody who doesn't deserve it, that's the Lord. His nature's mercy. His nature is compassion. His nature's kindness. I mean, let me let me tell you another healing story because again, it's 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 when you just don't get it. I mean, it's it's the whole thing. So one of the most one of the most remarkable ones that happened was when I was serving at a church in Chatham, Ontario, which is a uh, it's straight across the water from Cleveland. If you know where Cleveland is, yep. you get yeah, on the you go across the water, and if you get in the car and drive twenty minutes, you're at Chatham. That's where it is. I was serving there. Mm-hmm. And I have the permission of, of, of the fellow who passed. He passed on now because he was in his 80s when he died. But uh, when, I, when I was serving at a church in Chatham, Ontario, there was a lovely couple. He was a World War II vet. And he was, he was fit and healthy even in his 70s. We're talking about, the, you know, he had the abs when he was in his 70s. <laughs> he, wow. he used to work out all the time. He never departed from the disciplines of exercise he learned in the Canadian Army. All his days. Now, he married a lady who was five foot nothing and skinny as your finger. <laughs> and they were a sweet couple. I used to love watching them walk down the road. The town was about 40,000 people. And so everybody knew everybody else, right? And I remember driving down the street. I would see this couple. He was six foot four, strong as strong could be, with a great big, huge, you know, muscled body with perfect hair in his 70s. I was greatly jealous of that up to the day. <laughs> He'd be holding hands with the wife of his love. And they looked like an odd couple because she was so short and thin and he was so tall and muscular, but they loved each other. Anyway, I get this phone call and uh, they said, hey, would you do a 50th wedding anniversary for us in April? This was in September or so. I said, oh, wild horses wouldn't keep me away. That's a beautiful thing. Let's lock the date. So we, you know, we looked at the calendar, we locked the date. And I said, well, do you want me to come over quickly? They said, no, as long as the date's locked, we can invite people. You can come over and plan some other time. I said, okay. So about a month after that, I, I wended my way over to their home. And we were sitting in their front room, and they were old school. You know what I'm talking about? Old yeah. school. Yes. So there was a beautiful tablecloth. There was a silver tea service. There were little dainty things on lace doilies. <laughs> there were little <laughs> dainty. And you had to move your finger. Like if you watch Mary Poppins, when they pour yes. out, you <laughs> finger out, right? And this was, you had to be on your best behavior in this house, right? So it was very reserved. It's the best way to describe it. So the, you know, the, the man I'm talking about, Mr. Mr. Towson, was sitting at the end of this table, and he was dominating the table because he had a long torso and short legs. And he was a big, tall guy, muscular. And his wife was across the table from me, and she asked if she could pour out. That tells you about the English. You know, she's pouring these teas, right? And the man looked at me and said, can we change the date? I said, oh, I, uh, when do you want it? And he said, well, we'd like to do it between Christmas and New Year's instead of all the way off in April. So I pulled my planner out, and I looked, and I was clear on two days. So I said, one of those two days, so they picked one. I said, well, listen, you're trying to save money for your family so they don't have to travel twice. 
And he said, no, hmm. I have level four bone cancer Ooh. and I will be dead by April. And so I know that I can probably make it to Christmas and I want to celebrate 50 years with the woman I have loved. Oh, oh. she starts to cry. Yeah. And my job, I had my planner in those days, I had a paper planner. I had my <laughs> yeah. planner open. And I had come there to take notes about the 50th anniversary and make plans with them about what they like in it. Yes. And as I am sitting in this, I just, I, my, my whole, I mean, I'm in shock because the guy is, looks the picture of health. He's not. And so um, I looked at him and he said, then he started telling me hymns he wanted in his funeral. <laughs> I mean, that's, wow. no. So he said, oh, by the way, I want. And, I, and I, I, he said, write that down. So I took my pen and I was starting to write his favorite hymns. And as I'm doing this, this was the signal. Again, it was the same signal. I felt compassion rise up inside my soul. Now I'm sitting there with a silver TVC service and a white tablecloth and laced, you know, doilies with little dainties on them. And this World War II vet and a, and a lovely lady across the table from me. And I, I, have, I feel this presence and I feel like a, a hot tear come out of the corner of my eye. Mm. And a picture pops into my brain. And I saw me putting my hand around the back of his head and on the far side, putting my hand over his ear and praying. So I looked at him and I said, may I pray for you? And he sat up ramrod straight, World War II vet like, stuck his big chest out. And he mm -hmm. said, I'm married 50 years. My two kids are raised. I sold my business, paid off my house. My wife's in a good position. And he changed the subject. Now, if you have ever been in the ministry, you know, that's code for pastor, do not touch with barge pole. <laughs> Yep. <laughs> anyway, so I said, okay, okay. I'd been in the ministry a few years and I said, okay, okay, that's fine with me. So I went back to taking notes and once again, but this, here's what happened. The peace got bigger. The fire got bigger. The compassion got bigger. And now I'm weeping from two eyes. Yes. And this picture is in my head of me putting my hand around the backside of his head and praying for him. So I looked at him and I asked him a second time. Now I knew I was breaking the rule. <laughs> And he sat up Ramrod Street, grabbed the edges of the table, looked at me, and there was fire in his eye, and he repeated the speech. You know, uh, I'm married 50 years. I'm at peace with God. My two kids are raised. The business is sold. I, my wife's set up. It's okay. I, I, you know, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah. And it was like, why did you not get the subterranean text, Pastor? I thought you were smarter than that, right? So anyway, I asked him a third time, and I asked him a fourth time because the picture would not leave my head. And finally... He looked at me and he said, why do you keep asking if you can pray for me? I said, because I have a conviction in my soul that the Lord wants you well. Yes. So he, he said this. He said, well, married 50 years, the two kids are raised. <laughs> but then he said, <laughs> he said, you're the pastor. Go ahead. And so I, he, he conceded that I needed to do my pastorly duty. Right. So I reached yes. around. And I put my hand over the, the, that spot on his head where I saw it in my head. And as I prayed, the exact same thing that I described to you with the other guy with the phlebitis. This fire filled the room. His wife began to weep buckets of tears. And it wasn't sadness. It was something profound is happening here. He slumped over on the table. And this fire filled his body from the top of his head to the tips of his toes. I felt it. His wife felt it. He felt it. He was able barely to look up and said, what is that fiery heat coursing through my body? And I looked at him and I said, I believe that the Lord Jesus is granting you a healing. And then he said this. He said, keep praying. <laughs> <laughs> keep going. No, no. So listen, now, Rob, I can't tell you if it was five minutes or 20. I, I honestly, I when, when that kind of thing happens to you, you are utterly unconscious of anything else except that, that something profound is happening as you are praying. And it lasted, I don't know how long it lasted, but when it finally ended, the presence lifted from the room and he was able to sit up and he said, what was that? I said, I believe that the Lord is granting you a gift and he wants you to celebrate life with your wife a little longer. And he said, may I call you? And in those days, we had my home phone, my church phone. I didn't have a cell phone, right? And um, this is before this. This is one of the one of the, those defining moments that you want to talk about. And again, I did not plan it. 
I tripped into this. <laughs> That's, I was going to do a 50th wedding anniversary, right? Yes. So anyway, here's what happened. And this, there's, there's, a, there's a corollary to the end of the story that, uh, that again, and it was un, utterly unexpected. Uh, his nephew, or rather his, his grandson, was sleeping down the hall. He was a night shift worker. And he was sleeping down the hall while I was in the house. And I didn't know that the grandson was there. All right? Okay. So anyway. I left and I gave him my home number and I gave him the church number to reach me at whatever time he needed to. And then I went off and I did my hospital rounds and those were ordinary. I mean, I went to see somebody and I had a little quick prayer and I prayed consolation for them, et cetera, et cetera. They had the surgery and where you go, all the kind of thing. And he called three days later when I was doing my hospital rounds, couldn't get me, got my wife and said to her, why is it that every time I do my prayers or read the Bible, that fiery heat courses over my body again, and I can't even stand up. And he described this to my wife over the phone. And when I got home from doing my rounds, uh, she, she said, you know, he's having more encounters with the Lord. And I said, you know, God's going to heal him. And so here's what happened. Now, this is a Canadian story. We have universal health care up here, but it's a little yes. slower than your, your automatic health care down there. Yes. Uh, six weeks later, I got a call from him. And I was working in the office, getting ready for my, it was a Thursday morning. And that's usually the time when I would have to have my sermon done and ready to, to go to press so that I could do an outline and a Bible study for the church. And I had a death ministry in the church and they would sign and I had to have the whole manuscript done for them. And so I had to get it done by Thursday so they could practice signing it for, for Sunday. Anyway, I had just finished writing the sermon and I was just about to set, push send to get it off to, uh, to the death ministry when my secretary walks in. Her name was Linda. Yeah. Now, Linda had been invited to the to the April event and knew about the date change. Before, right? she knew. Yes. And she looked at me and she said, you got a phone call from Ron. He needs you to come right now. And I looked at Linda and she looked at me. And of course, I said, you better cancel my day. And she said, it's canceled. I already did it. <laughs> so I got the car and I drove over to this house. Now you got to know it was like Groundhog's Day. Everything was identical. <laughs> I sit down and there is this white tablecloth. There's this silver tea service. He's sitting at the head. The wife is sitting across. Her name is Mary. Mary was sitting across from me. There were these lace doily things on the table and she poured out the silver tea service. And then the man looked at me. Now remember, he was a conservative World War II vet guy who uh, was, was, how do I say this? There's a generation of believers who believed but talked about it at arm's length. Can I say it that way? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. One of those guys, right? Real faithful guy, hardworking guy, honest guy. He would read his Bible at night. If you asked him, he'd tell you, but he was not one of these guys to push on anybody. Anyway, yeah. he sits up, he's reserved, and he says, had a biopsy got the results i'm looking at him he said cancer is gone and then he went wow. like this and then he, <laughs> we know who got that <laughs> <laughs> now let me give you the end of the story so fast forward and we're talking about three years ago now that was a 1998 story so fast forward to about three years ago and i'm now a seminary professor teaching a class yeah and there is a student in the class whose name is Tyler. And Tyler, and so I tell the story that I'm because I'm talking about how the Holy Spirit works and I'm talking about compassion being the trigger and what this manifest presence feels like. And actually, the thing you put your finger on, the difference between relief versus the experience of the Spirit. I was talking about that. And I tell the whole story. And this guy, Tyler, raises his hand. I said, Can I can I share something in the class, uh, Dr. Dean? I said, well, how long is it? He said, well, just take me a minute. I said, okay, I have more to my lecture. He stands up and he says, that story is true. I was sleeping down the hall when my grandpa got healed. Mm. And I said, you were, you were the grandson of Mr. and Miss Ron and Marion? He said, yes, I am. I was okay. a shift worker. I was sleeping down the hall. I woke up to get ready for my night shift and my grandpa was lying on the couch, obviously resting. 
he sat up and I said, Grandpa, you look odd. He said, what's going on? He said, well, there's this fiery heat coursing through my body. <laughs> Pastor David just came and prayed for me. He said, well, why did he come and pray for you? And he said, because I, I haven't told you yet, but I have a diagnosis of level four bone cancer, but I believe the Lord has made me well. And he told the story in the, the class I was teaching after I told my story. Wow. And so he corroborated what had happened in that 1998 story. All those years later, like 29, 20 years later. That's amazing. So, again, and I wasn't, I, when you just don't get it, I wasn't looking for <laughs> what happened in my class on the Holy Spirit. I was teaching a seminary class to a bunch of students, right? Yeah. So uh, this this was, you got to know, those were defining moments for me. The first one that I told you was the defining moment because it, it, it made me realize that there are things unseen and I don't have to always know what I'm doing. <laughs> yes, so true, so true. Sometimes God keeps you in the dark and allows you to trip into things so that you don't boast, but he gets the glory. Yeah, like that's that's what people have to, have to understand that it's not always gonna look the way you want it to look, you know? In fact, it never looks the way I want it. Yeah, <laughs> it never yeah. Does. It's so true. Like even even with with me doing this, yes, it's like I knew I wanted to speak. Like I was doing workshops and stuff within within my gym, but even just like speaking on these topics and getting people's backstories. Like when I started this podcast, I didn't even really have a direction. I just kind of like I knew I, I was a good speaker. I knew I could inspire people, but I didn't really have the central theme. I'd like just once I started speaking. Actually, <laughs> you you know when it happened. I was on a Zoom call. This is the week that my gym got shut down. Okay. And so I joined, I immediately joined a mastermind group. Yeah. And people had to kind of kind of how you all did at the publicity summit, how you had two minutes to, you know, pitch your pitch your, your product, business, book, or idea. Yep. And so it was just like uh introduce yourself, tell where you're from and what you do. Yep. It it seems like it would be simple enough. And so many people were bad at it. So many people. <laughs> so, so, so as people are talking, I'm writing their names down. And then when they're done, I would shoot them a private message in the Zoom and be like, hey, my name is Rob, Rob Foster. I can help you better tell that story. And so like I call myself the storytelling coach. And I don't even know if that's a thing, but that's what I do. And like it wasn't something that was planned. It wasn't a direction I saw coming. Yep. But I would just put in a position to use the skill set that I have to help better the lives of other people. So you just never know what it looks like. Well, actually, you know what? It's a common theme in the Bible. So I mean, one of the most hilarious stories was the way that the Lord raised up the first king in Jewish history. Mm -hmm. So there's this guy, his name is Saul, and his daddy runs a farm. He was a big farm boy, big strapping farm boy. He was strong and he was good looking. And the donkeys get lost. <laughs> and there's a guy named Samuel the prophet. He'd never met him. Samuel was praying because Samuel's old and they want a king and he needs a king, et cetera, et cetera. So Samuel, and he gets this word from God. Oh, I'm going to send you somebody from the land of Benjamin. He's going to be the king. Yeah. And so the donkeys get lost. And Saul winds up spending three days and three nights out in the wild sleeping, <laughs> trying to find these crazy donkeys. <laughs> and then he runs out of money. He runs out of food. He's probably smelling bad. And his friend says to him, what are we going to do? I said, well, there's a prophet in the next town over there. Why don't we go and inquire the prophet? They were broke. They had two dimes to rub together. They probably smelled bad. And there was a festival being held in that town. Yeah. Now, you got to know, at a festival, you dress up, you wash you get the best leg of lamb, you put that on the table, and you don't come in there after spending three days sleeping out in the wild. Yep. So he shows up smelling like you know, mm -hmm. and, and Samuel hears the voice. That's him. That's the king. He looks at him. He puts him at the head table. Now, can you imagine coming from a camping trip after three days without shaving or washing and winding up at the head table of a wedding? <laughs> 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 and then he says, you're the one. He says, I'm the one for what? And he pours oil on the guy. He becomes the king. I mean, that was not his idea. Neither with David, the king of Israel. He wasn't accepting it easier. When the first king blew it, God raises up this shepherd boy. You know, that's, and so, <laughs> and, you know, and the story is hilarious. 
you know, wow. he's, he, so this guy, there's this farmer named Jesse. He's got a pack of strong sons, you know, five or six of them are already in the army. And so Samuel, the prophet, who's now very old and doesn't know what he's going to do with the fact that the renegade king is being an idiot, says, what am I going to do? And God says, I'm going to send you that farm over there. And he says, well, they'll kill me. Saul will kill me if he knows I'm trying to raise up another king. And he says, well, just go and tell him you're going to do a feast. So he shows up and all of these handsome sons come off showing off their abs and showing off their expertise. And God says, none of them. It's the boy in the field. Mm. He makes all of the strong brothers stand up and wait till the boy washes and comes into the presence of the king. Or comes into the presence of the prophet. Then he anoints him with oil and makes him the king. And he wasn't trying to be the king. He was trying to make sure those sheep were safe. <laughs> so this is, it's, it's kind of like the story I told you at the beginning. Yes. It's, 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 it, you, you trip over a root, you bang your head on a rock, you're about to swear profusely and make your mother mad at you. And you discover you got a diamond or a sapphire or a ruby. See, and most people spend all their time talking about the bump on the head. You know what? And and they don't realize <laughs> that they're holding a piece of gold or a diamond yes. or a sapphire or a ruby. And mm -hmm. it's these things that you would seem like they're accidents. Yes. They're not accidents at all. They're divine appointments. God has set up something for you. In fact, I can say this to you without even a second's hesitation. Every single major thing that I have ever done in life has not been something I have planned. Not even the wife I married. In fact, that's a hilarious story. That's a, <laughs> that, I mean, here, here's how I met my wife. My heart was broken because the girl that I wanted to marry married somebody else. Mm -hmm. And I was just a, like, I was grief stricken. And I actually was serving a church in Northern Alberta. And I decided that I needed just to, to, to lick my wounds and get over this. I resigned the pulpit and I went off to school. Yeah. And I didn't have a lot of money because pastors don't make a lot of money. And especially a small rural pastor doesn't make a lot of money. And I had saved up a little bit because I didn't have kids and a wife and that kind of thing. But they didn't pay much. Anyway, I had $7,000 total and you know, the tuition was half of that. I was going to move to Vancouver. Now, if you don't know this. That's on the other side, right? Yeah, it is. It's right. it's it's as expensive as New York City, right? Okay. It's very, very expensive. In fact, it's probably some of the most expensive geography on earth because it's landlocked with mountains. It's just north of Seattle, okay? Yeah. And it looks very much like Seattle, except it's far more expensive. Anyway, the bottom line was moving to this city. And I don't have enough money to be able to pay the bills. And so I was always looking for ways to cut corners. Well, there was somebody in my church named Ruth who was going to be moving to the coast to take a different course. And I said, oh, isn't that nice? She said, look, you know, we can save some money if we just put our two households together and we'll move it all at the same time. And she had a friend named Elizabeth. And she said, look, if the three of us put this together, it's the cost of one move. And as it turned out, it was five five to ten percent more than my moving myself. Yes. And so it was a lot cheaper to do that. So I just put all my stuff in Ruth's garage and I tented my way across the mountains of British Columbia and I came to Vancouver. And then there was an appointed day where I was supposed to go and get my uh, my stuff. For, the mover was going to come to their place. So Ruth and Elizabeth were going to be roommates and uh, I was going to be in a different city. I was in uh, this, the adjacent city. So the plan was show up and help them move in and then guide the driver to my house so that we could uh, so that i could get my stuff moved in and we'd save two-thirds of the cost right good idea so anyway i show up ruth has to work two more weeks and so this lady elizabeth is with her cousin robin and they're cleaning out the apartment to get ready for this move in and i show up at 10 o'clock in the morning which was the appointed time for the mover to get there this was before cell phones, right? You remember these phone booths, you know? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Superman would go in there and so would Doctor Who. Anyway, <laughs> watch out if one of those boys showed up. So here's what happened. We wait until two in the afternoon. No mover. And so I don't know these two girls. I, I met Elizabeth briefly, you know, but I didn't know her. I didn't know her cousin Robin at all. And I'm, I'm a stranger with these two girls sitting in this apartment. And so they go outside and there was a construction zone right across the street. And we find a phone next to a construction zone. She calls her dad and screams into the phone that the thing is not there. And the guy tries to find the truck. Then um, he, he said, call me in an hour. So we called him in an hour at three o'clock. And the guy said he had a breakdown to be there next morning, 10 o'clock. So I said, oh, okay, that's fine. So I drive off and I'm, I still have my camping stuff. So I'm fine, right? So I come back the next day and I'm there at 10 o'clock. No moving truck. And this, that now it was Friday, okay? And so we tried calling again, and the moving company says, we don't know where he is. We can't track him. 
So we had no choice except to hang around and wait. So I'm waiting. And then we hit the weekend, you know, and I'm a preacher and I was preaching in a church. Yeah. I didn't have my notes and my plan was to pull an old sermon out so I wouldn't have to prepare anything. And uh, I didn't have my notes because they were all in that movie truck. (laughs) (laughs) So I didn't know what to do. So I created one out of my head and these two girls felt guilty. So they came to church and then her cousin had to get on the plane and leave because she was going to leave on the Friday. And so now we wait on Monday, we wait on Tuesday, we wait on Thursday, we wait on Friday. And I, but you know, I'm sitting in this empty apartment with this strange girl. I don't know who she is. I hardly know her. And of course, what are we talking about? And she keeps, she's very Canadian. She keeps saying, I'm sorry. And I'm always, <laughs> she was the one who arranged the moving truck, right? Anyway, mm-hmm. by the time we hit the Thursday, I looked at her and I said, look, you need to know something. My heart is broken. I don't want to see a breathing female. <laughs> Leave me alone. I, I am not interested. And as it turned out, she'd just broken up with her boyfriend and he had been actually, he had been stalking her. Oh. And she And so it was not good. Yeah. And so she said, I am not interested in any male. I said, look, I got two brothers. I don't understand estrogen and females at all. She said, I have two sisters. I don't understand testosterone in males. I said, I need a sister. She said, I need a brother. I said, good. It's a deal. <laughs> you know what happened? Uh, we became the best of friends because we, we, were, we were in this crazy thing. We had to solve the thing together because we, both her stuff and mine was in this thing. Yeah. Eventually, the guy shows up. And you know what he did? Exactly. He decided to take a mountain vacation with his son. So he was sitting with our stuff, fishing in the British Columbia interior <laughs> Come on, <laughs> with this moving truck because it had a sleeper bed in the back. And him and his son were having a nice time, 10 consecutive days. Wow. Well, they gave us a deep discount. They fired the driver, right? But here's what happened. I bonded to this girl and she became my best friend. Mm. And in the course of time, I looked over at her and she looked over at me and we realized we were to marry. But I mean, you got to know something. I was not looking to do that. (laughs) Thank you very much. I was trying to save 66% on my move. And I was trying to get myself (laughs) all town, Alberta to Vancouver, British Columbia, and to save money doing it because I didn't have a lot of money left over. That was my only agenda. And in the process I tripped on a root, banged my head, looked at the rock, and discovered it was a sapphire. Wow. That's how I married my wife. I'm That's con- amazing. Well, it's, I love it's that story. Divine providence. It's a, I didn't do that. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Let's let's talk about let's talk about your book. We got yeah, about sure. three and a half minutes to go. Okay. Do you, you, want, you want to show it to you? You want to do yeah. that? Yeah. Okay, yes. So this, this is the book that you that I that I actually have another one coming out soon, but this is the one that you saw. It's called Henry Clare's God's Idea. And it's a co-write. I didn't just write this myself. I wrote this with uh, an upper room author by the name of uh, Reverend Maxi Dunham. He has got 47 books to his under his belt. Wow. And so he so we co-wrote this book because both of us realized there was a crying need out there for uh, teaching people how to pray for him. Because I didn't know how to do it. He didn't know how to do it. And in the course of time, we both learned various principles. And well, here's what happened. He came to my church. And when he came to my church, he said, you know, um, uh, I, I am preparing a, a brochure to teach my intercessors how to do this in my church in, in, in Memphis, Tennessee. And I had prepared a brochure to do it in my church in Spruce Grove, Alberta. And he, we looked at the two things. The theology overlapped 95%, but the practices were different. And we said to each other, why don't we put the two of them together and create a book called Healing Prayers, God's Idea? And so uh, in the court, it took, there were, there were fits and starts. It took us a while to get around to this thing, but we finally did. And so last May, we published it. It was, it was available on Amazon. And yeah. so if you go to amazon.com, you can get the uh, Kindle edition. And actually, it made number one in the prayer category when we, when we launched the book. I was really quite delighted with that. And it's it made amazing. number two in the paper cat category. And I'm yeah. sure it's because he is a well-known author. It's not because of me. I'm not very well-known in the United States. But um, he and I are doing things together. And because of him, I'm going to be doing some conferences in the U.S. So I'm going to be going to Lexington. Hey, do you know Alveda King? Do you know her? Alveda Alveda King, Martin Luther King's niece. Do you know her? Oh, yes. Yeah, I'm going to be sharing a pulpit with her. Awesome. Yeah, that's going to happen in Lexington, Kentucky in November. So that's one of the ones that came out of this book. So if if the border is open by then. What's that? What's that? Sorry. Oh, yes. (laughs) If the border is open by then. Do you think it will be? I I hope so. I hope so, too. 
Yeah. You never I know. And like all, all of Australia is on lockdown right now. So Yeah, you know. I know. So but here's what I can do. I, I actually I'm gonna be becoming the director of an American nonprofit in about a month. Okay. And so I'm gonna be flying into Los Angeles. I can fly and right now I don't have to quarantine. And so what I have, but I am double vaxxed and I'm very thankful for that. So I will be going into Los Angeles. I'm going to be heading up an organization called the Research Institute of Contemporary and Cultural Studies. And the, the reason for that is so that Americans can donate if they wish to, so that I can, I, I have several goals. One of them is to, is to write resources and to train people. And you got to know, there's all kinds of other disciplines in the Christian life that I didn't receive training in. And I tripped into those too. And I don't want people not to have access or ability to be able to understand and learn. So this book is actually a primer. And another one that I'm writing, it's going to come out in the fall. It's called, uh, Hey, Are You There? It's Me, God. How to Listen, Test, and Know When God Speaks. Again, it's a primer, teaching people how to pay attention to the signals. But um, my goal is not just to work in Canada and the U.S. My goal is to travel to poorer regions across the earth. Yes. And I hope I have I've spoken in, in Travel Society Uganda. I have spoken in Latin America. I have spoken in parts of Southeast Asia that are poor. And I would like to create a donor base and uh, to be able to fund those trips and go to places where the church is weak or poor and to help them. And so it, I'm going to be the director of RICS, R-I-C-C-S, the Research Institute of Contemporary and Cultural Studies. Uh, as of uh, um, August 16, that's when the transition is going to happen. And okay. so that's my hope soon. is, what's that? So that's soon. It's very soon. And so, um, you know, the fact that my wife got COVID was a bear. Now, let me just tell you something. I don't, I'm not what I call a prosperity gospel guy. I don't believe you can slap people on the forehead and get an automatic healing. Yeah. But I do believe this, that the healing power of the Lord is available today and God initiates and we respond. But I want that message to go into every kind of church. And you know this, there are faithful believers in every, every Christian tradition. There's, I don't care if you're a Catholic or a Baptist or a Pentecostal or a Mennonite or Episcopalian. There are Christians everywhere and they're honest folk who don't know how to do these disciplines. And my goal is to create resources and to train these things. And so I've written two books this year. The one you, that you saw, the National Business Book, the one I held up, is how to learn how to do prayer for healing in churches. And the one that's going to come out in the fall, going to be published on Amazon. Hey, are you there? It's me, God is going to be designed to teach people how to pay attention to the signals that the Lord's trying to get your attention. Love it. Yeah. Awesome. Awesome. Well, that's our time. So you have a final word for us? Hey, uh, let me say this to you. It's been a delight to talk to you. You picked the best possible title for this thing because when you just don't get it, it's the story of my life. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, and, and it's, mo it's most everyone else's, too. Like I think that's true. I think if you push under the surface, you'll discover that most people had something happen to them, and it became a defining moment. Yes. And uh, I said, well, that you, you describe it yourself. And, but I can say this to you. Uh, God is into those. That's <laughs> no, true. It's and so he true. Wants, he wants your attention. And you will discover him when you're least expecting it. And if you cry out to him. He'll pay attention and he'll intervene, but it won't be the way that you're expecting. <laughs> yes. Like there's, there's a young woman who, who signed up for a free trial that I had at my, my gym. Yeah. And so she comes in and as we're, as we're talking in the consultation, you know, cause I'm pretty good at reading people and asking the right questions to get them to open up to me. Yes. And she just starts, you know, unloading a good amount. And so I was like, I don't really think you're here for fitness. <laughs> I said, because I help people, you know, unpackage stuff like that. Yep. And so, you know, like we had we had met because things had just gone virtual around the first time she reached out to me yep. just to just to talk. And then, you know, she she wasn't quite sure of the way I was leading her. And I was and then so some time would go by that she she would reach out to me again and then she would reach out to me again. And she's like, you know, it's like, I just don't know what to do. I'm like, you do, because you keep coming back to me. Yep. Everything that you try, you keep coming back to me. <laughs> it's like, there is a reason why. That's called so, a divine appointment. That's yes. what call a divine appointment. God yes, it's like this. Yes, it's like, this is the guidance that you need. You're resisting it. It's like, if you just step into what you're being pushed to, no, you can find that thing that you're looking for. I think a lot of people struggle with that. 
Yes, it's true. And actually, what you need to learn to do is to, actually that would be the topic of my next book, which is going to come out in the fall. Hey, you're there to be God. There are actually the book is for forgiving people, more people preaching inclusion. It's all out there, but there's no money in that. That's that, right. That's why the networks don't play it. But if a white cop shoots shoot somebody, that's international news. Right. Because people get outraged. They, they get emotional. And they're buying newspaper. They're liking. They're sharing. They're on all the social platforms, making them more money. And, and that that's, uh, it, I hate to say it, but it's true. It is it's true. true. It's, it's like sensationalism. They let, they let people get hurt. They let businesses get destroyed. People are getting murdered. Like there was a cop who was patrolling. And he went home on his lunch break. So that means he's patrolling in the community that he lives in, right? A black cop trying to make a difference in his community. And an 18-year-old black kid ambushed him at his house and murdered him. Right. <laughs> you know what I mean? It's like, but 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 things like that, it doesn't happen all the time. No. It doesn't happen all the time. But, well, because, of, but because it was a black kid who murdered a black cop, there was no national outrage. Right. Well, and, they, and that's the thing. You hit on it. It's sensationalism. It brings in money. It, when people, when you sensationalize things, it's the same way with, you know, any any community. You know, I, I, I make, you know, I've made this uh, point before. You know, during gay pride, the majority of gay pride uh, is normal. Like, you'll, you'll be like, you'll see families there, you know, yeah. people who have kids and everything, and it's, it's normal. But do you think they ever show that? No, they'll show the most extreme gay men that, that they can find dressed in the most extreme extreme ways they can to continue to perpetuate that stereotype to show straight america see this is how crazy gay people are yeah. you know look how they dress they're always sexual about everything blah blah you know when the most of us are just boring as hell honestly <laughs> so, <laughs> but you can't tell america that because that's not what they see and that's what you're yeah. right so pull yourself away from the tv and i don't care if you watch box i don't care if you watch msnbc or cnn it's all it's all geared to to an audience that that they know will make them money and they're all they're doing is showing what they know their audience wants to see they're not they're not showing the truth they're showing right a small portion of what goes on and makes and, and trying to make it look like, Oh, that's normal. And it's not, it yes. just isn't. See, and, and I bring that up be, because it, it does shape people's minds. Right. And, and it can lead to some of those negative thoughts. Like with, with me saying that I, I was unsure about getting into that controversial space, you know, because I have one show that's very upbeat and positive and then like i don't want to get it crossed over with the other one right if, if i have a couple episodes that go a little haywire but what i'm finding is as long as you set the expectations in the beginning so on when i have panelists on i let them know like we're gonna have a discussion it's like okay what side are you on what side, side are you on okay i want you to just step into your side but just hear mine and then right. I'm, I'm gonna step into my side and i'm gonna hear yours at the end of this hour, my goal is not for you to be on my side. My goal is to just understand where you're coming from. It's like right. that—that's what a debate is designed to do. But people are like, no, 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 no. You have to listen to this. If you don't listen to this, then you're some label. Pick the label of the day. Right. <laughs> well, this is what I'll say, and this is what my show is about. I, you know, I challenge people to challenge their beliefs because you want to see if your beliefs actually hold water. And people think they have the truth. And 